We're back. Split Take Podcast, episode number two of the new order of zooming and videoing this stuff. Which I mean, <laughs> if you if you listen on Spotify, it makes makes no difference. Literally zero. Except you won't be anyway. able to see this week's beverages. Well, yes, you'll you'll be able to hear are. them. Yeah. Well, you go first. You know, I got an interesting one. You do have an interesting one. We usually yes. for for the uninitiated, we usually check in about what beers or, or various beverages we're we're drinking. Uh, no beer today, I'm afraid, because it is ten in the morning. <laughs> yeah. Well, you could have a beer, but, but it's, I'm not sure it's that's Sunday. It is Sunday, but it is ten in the morning as well. Yeah. And I literally just got up. So I am drinking a uh, nice coffee out of my coyote mug, which you can see. <laughs> if you're watching the video, the mug I is am... probably more interesting than the actual coffee. It's well, just coffee. No. Black. Oh, he drinks it black, too. An aristocrat. I got yes. a chilled glass of chocolate. You do. That looks very fancy. <laughs> it's got the little I chilled... edge. Yeah, I chill. I have a lot of different uh, glasses that I chill in the freezer. I got, you know, the, the pint with the little uh, uh, finger ridge on it. I got the mm. the, the classic ale mug. Um, and I put them in the freezer just so when I have a beer, it's even colder. But I also like to pour chocolate milk in them because it's. It's very cold. It's very it's very smooth milk. And I am. I don't I don't know if I'm te- I technically am because I've never done a test, but I'm pretty sure I'm lactose intolerant. Are but you? I will. Well, I will what makes you think that? Because every time I drink milk, my stomach bubbles and it hurts and I fart a lot. <laughs> but I will simply tolerate the lactose. Hmm. One second. All right, now on to the order of business. Welcome, everyone, to the Split Take Podcast. This week, we are again recording on Zoom, so this will be going up on our YouTube channel, the which is the Film Sync. I always mm-hmm. find that that's kind of difficult that, you know, we record Split Take, but it's on the Film Sync, which, as a name, I don't know if I've ever really fallen in love with, but I it's, it's there. That's what it is. But it is there. Yeah. It, you know. Mm-hmm. There are we ever names. find something no, there are not worse a lot names there are worse names there are worse names. well we, we might change it eventually although t- i just got a renewal notice uh, that reminded me that i do own uh movieessays.com that is a domain name i own i didn't real like that was available i would have thought mm. someone would have taken that mm. but it's all mine and you if you uh dear film lover actually like to write essays because we clearly haven't written any in a long time if you go to the website uh, and, and you would like to start movieessays.com and purchase that domain name from me we can make that happen no less than ten thousand dollars but <laughs> you can have that domain it's name invest- if you want it it's an it wasn't in uh, you know I, I think it might pay off eventually who knows that's what who i keep knows? saying about my la dolce vita blu-ray <laughs> What else do you, but you're going to watch that one, aren't you? Yeah, I'll watch it. But when I watch is, it, like, I know we're, is it on this list? Do we eventually have to watch for this? Yes. Yeah. When I do, I'll probably just watch it on Criterion channel. I don't want to open the Blu-ray. 
I'm not sure if it's on the Criterion channel at the moment. It might be. I will Cringe. let you know if it... I'm pretty sure it's not, but... Because I, I have... I gave you Don't Look Now. Yes, so I have... I, I haven't unwrapped yet. So I have... I have a... Uh, the Terrence Malick one and La Dolce Vita. I'm pretty sure I have one more, but I don't remember what it is. Not not Rosemary's Baby. We didn't manage no. to do that. Uh, I didn't get Harold and Maude either. Nashville. I remember. I own Nashville, but I didn't buy a new copy of Nashville. Oh. Maybe, I, maybe it was just those three. Perhaps. Perhaps. Mm. So, yes, uh, we also technically have a Discord, which I've shared once or twice on the website. Uh, to little fanfare, but that's, that's fine. Uh, so you could join that Discord if you wanted to. Uh, and of course, sit on to our, us on... in our Minecraft Mondays. Yeah, you could. Maybe you should just create a separate, a separate uh, <laughs> channel for that, so that doesn't become an issue. But um, yep, subscribe to us wherever you're listening to this on YouTube, Spotify, Apple, what, whatever. Anyway, so this week on the Split Take podcast, we're going to be discussing the 2020 movie Minari. And the Italian film The Conformist from 1970, which is our BFI Sight and Sound 2012 Greatest Films of All Time list movie of the week. But first, Chandler, what have you been watching? Well, I'll be brief with mine uh, because I've I've fallen into a, a temporary addiction. Um, <laughs> me and Jacob play the video game Ed Sid Meier's Civilization. Uh, whenever I play, I go hard and I go hard for like two or three weeks and then I stop playing for a while. I'm currently in week one of the two or three weeks that I go hard. So movie wise, I've been a little slow, but there's a few that I do want to mention. Um, three. Uh, one is Yojimbo. Uh, do, are we going to talk about this at some point in the future on the podcast? It is not on the list. Really? Interesting. I guess it's one of those things where I'm kind of surprised, but at the same time, there's so many great Kurosawa movies that you're bound to not have a few. Yeah, it it should be quite it, <laughs> if you're asking me, but that's uh, no, I don't think it is. Well, it's great. Uh, I watched it with a commentary. I haven't seen it in a while. It's one of those things where I've literally only seen Yojimbo once and oh. it was almost three years ago. And typically when I watch commentaries, I do it right after recently seeing it again. So I can sort mm -hmm. of, you know, not pay as much attention to the story. So maybe that's not the way I should have gone. But uh, it did remind me why I love this movie so much. It's just it's a fun time. It's a fun time. It, it's a fun time. And I, I genuinely think it's one of the most perfectly shot movies. I of agree. All time. Like, like I agree. Staging, camera framing, everything. I, I don't know of a single shot that doesn't doesn't work on multiple levels. The the staging, the crazy lenses, the constantly the very vibrantly alive environments. Lots of wind. Lots of wind. Um so yes, yeah, so that one's great. I finally watched Halloween. Yeah. I was yeah. surprised you liked it as much as you did. Uh, it's one of those things where most slasher movies to me, they're all very samey. Um, and I give I give credit where credit's due as far as the like more inspirational ones. But the two slasher movies that are, are largely credited with uh, making the genre 
I thought it was going to be one of those things where I watched them and I had to add that context. But both of them being Halloween and Black Christmas themed mm. slasher movies, Halloween um, holidays. Um, they're both just great. <laughs> like a lot of the dumb slasher stuff that comes in later in the 80s, the lazy stuff, the Friday the 13th kind of stuff. It's it's not really in there. They're genuinely really creepy movies, especially Halloween, because you know the the way the slasher formula you know uh, uh creepy guy stalks horny teenagers and to an extent that is what happens but mm-hmm. the framing of halloween michael myers is like very rarely front and center kind of like the way jason is michael myers is always like far in the background like part of the environment so it's genuinely really creepy and it's a very ambiguous ending, very, very simple. The score is great. Jamie Lee Curtis is great. I didn't expect it to like as much as I did, but it, it's a pretty solid movie. Uh, it's probably right now, I think it's third in my Carpenter like list or whatever, with mm-hmm. The Thing and Escape from New York being right above it. But very good. I recommend it. And finally, yesterday, for the first time in over a year, I went to the movie theater and I saw a movie. Yep. Wow. Yep. Movie theaters. What, what are those? (laughs) Tell me. I Uh, I think I know what you saw. Cause I just, as soon as I opened up letterboxd, I saw three people had all logged in the same (laughs) film and it was just kind of plastered across my front page of letterboxd. Well, the thing is about this occasion i knew that whatever movie i saw after being away from the theater for the first time or for a whole year would feel like a masterpiece just because it's in a theater it's a different experience of course so of all movies that i went to go see i went to go see scott pilgrim vs. the world because that one is genuinely a masterpiece so it, it why is not genuinely a great movie yeah and a fun time which it's a very you fun know, time i think that i think that's a great reintroduction to the theater because it's not it's just a fun time like you're you're just there and you can enjoy yourself you're not like watching some sober drama or exactly it's incredibly fun it's been one of my top 10 favorite movies for like over a decade at this point and this like i was looking at my letterbox stats uh of all time because i didn't realize you could do that until recently um but it's my most rewatched movie on the entire app really yeah i've like i didn't know it was coming to theaters until about a month ago Mm-hmm. And the last time I saw it was two months ago. Because I literally watch it like two or three times a year. Because mm-hmm. uh, it's just it's one of those things that everything about it is just so specific to my interests. And the filmmaking is so great that every time I watch it, I get inspired a little bit more. And I saw it in Dolby Atmos surround whatever theaters, which is basically a regular movie theater, but insanely fucking loud. Oh, yeah. um, it, but it was good because with the insane this is the first time i've ever seen in a theater too uh and with the insane sound i actually picked up on a lot of um like uh audio gags that i haven't heard before oh yeah the the film is littered with that kind of stuff yeah and i guess just because i've been watching it on tvs on laptops my whole life i haven't been able to hear a lot of that stuff but this time like in the beginning scene when they're talking like it's like the second scene in the movie they're all sitting on scott's bed talking about uh knives chow mm-hmm. and uh scott and kim are like kind of arguing and every time scott gets a little bit like more uh hurt in the argument you can hear like a, a windows vista uh error sound 
It's one of those things that I never heard before. But when the <laughs> the sound is so fucking loud, it's impossible not to. The, I think I might have mentioned on the podcast, but I watched it a few months, a month and a half ago now. I don't know. Time is an illusion. Uh, I showed my friend other Jacob, same name, and his. We watched it at his apartment and his TV. Him not being like a film fan, not optimal uh, settings whatsoever. Like it frustrates using me. TV audio, but like. Yeah, it, it frustrates me to no end that we have to watch it, uh, movies like that, but th- <laughs> they wouldn't get watched any other way. So, but it's like we're at one end of the room on a couch and it's a small 40 inch TV on the other side of the room with poor audio. And so it was not like, especially <laughs> with something like Scott Pilgrim that has great sound design, not not the best optimal uh, setting to watch that. And that was my last time watching it. Yeah it's in theaters for another week so i mean i i'm only half vaccinated but it's one of those things where i'm like i can't miss this i already missed out on lord of the rings in the theaters i'm not missing that, out on scott pilgrim first yeah i know it's why did they do that oh couldn't they have waited can't they it's really? so funny because in yeah. being an a it was at an amc and amc before the movie was you know they're showing a bunch of uh, amc ads or whatever and mm-hmm. uh apparently 2020 was the centennial of the AMC movie theaters, and I just found that fucking hilarious. That's the worst time ever to have a centennial. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's one of those movies too that every time I watch it, I pick up on something new. And this one, the one thing that I, I, I well, there's a few things I picked up on, but the, the biggest one to me is that I didn't realize until just this recent viewing that Ramona, like her hair color, is different in all three acts of the movie. Mm-hmm. so when he meets her it's red uh and then after the first boyfriend fight or uh, around the first boyfriend fight which is really the f- break into the second act it's blue and then in the final act in gideon's whatever it's green um which i thought oh that's an interesting way to demonstrate the three acts but also at the same time three colors red blue green edgar wright i'm like oh <laughs> That's interesting. That, that is interesting. For huh. for the uninitiated, that's the, the those that's the color coordination for his Cornetto trilogy of movies. That being Shaun of the Dead, Hot Fuzz, and The World's End. Maybe he just <laughs> likes those colors. Coincidence? Or they're good colors. They're good colors. Could and they're, yeah, those are also uh, interesting enough. The uh, the three colors on the poster. It's a oh, red yeah. background. He's wearing blue jeans and a green shirt. That's true. <laughs> That's true. Maybe not. It's funny because the the sort of illusions, this visual harmony between this movie and the Cornetto trilogy just makes me feel even more that Baby Driver is just like not even in the same wheelhouse as these movies. It's it's kind of like the adopted child in the family that everyone wishes wasn't adopted. I it's they not a bad a lot of people <laughs> A lot of people really like that movie. I don't hate that movie. Yeah. It's no, just it's, it's pretty good. It's yeah, it's pretty yeah. good. I'm hoping his new uh, movie. <laughs> I don't know if I should state this out loud on a podcast on the Internet, but quite frankly, everything like Kevin Spacey, total asshole, They're like nothing good, uh, except for the fact that Baby Driver is funnier. Now that we know what we know, about it's him. true, it's true, it's true. And yeah, I don't like Ansel Elgort, but that I'm not talking about this movie. Uh, yeah. It it's a good movie. It's a very good movie. I recommend everyone see it. It's a great movie to come back to the theaters. 
I looking at my stats, uh, Scott Pilgrim is my tied for my seventh watch most watch film. Of wow, all time. Yeah. What is your uh, first? It, it, there's a two way tie between Parasite and Paddington Two. That. <laughs> <laughs> Both of which I've had a strong urge to rewatch recently. So one of them, I think, will uh, one of them's going to be bumped up to ten times. And ten then, times? Yeah. Parasite's in my top five for most watched too. Uh, then it's My Dinner with Andre, uh, Burning, Yee Yee, and Your Name. Four way tie at five times each. Burning and Yee Yee, three like three hour movies that you've watched five or six times. Great. Burning is two and two hours 20 that used to feel really long to me but after watching brighter summer day and then an elephant sitting still in the fucking justice league three hours feels short and then the rest of my most watch is just a a continuous tie for four times (laughs) and scott pilgrim is the first on that list simply because i think it's the the most recent recent movie i've but i think I, i i like to watch movies four times quite a bit it's true that's how you get it all scott pilgrim pretty great it's a great movie that's all i got though what do you got all right uh well speaking of theaters i was very happy to learn that the uh the loft cinema here in tucson arizona the local independent movie theater is it's a uh, great theater reopening their their doors to the to the indoor theater in a in a month actually less than a month hmm. this month may <laughs> um but i've been looking forward to that for a very long time and rather unfortunately right before the pandemic started i uh i finally had enough disposable income to buy a membership to the loft which includes so and so uh, amount of free passes and you get discounted tickets and all that and then like a month later the pandemic hits and you know (sighs) sad (laughs) great timing for that purchase um they refund it at least they've extended it i don't know how okay but Mm. i know it's still active and i don't know i have gone to see a few movies out out, they've started screening outdoor movies in the in the back parking lot on the side of the building but that's it's not the same as uh you saw jaws there right i did Yeah. yeah jaws was great there um very much looking forward to seeing a movie indoors and i actually I haven't heard back yet. Sad. But I emailed them like a week ago saying, you know, there was recently restorations of Tarkovsky's uh, The Mirror and, oh. uh, and Wong Kar Wai's Chunking Express. Yeah, you gonna you gonna wink, wink, nudge, nudge, put those on. Can I see them in a theater? Because uh, I would love to. I'm, I'm curious. What do you think if you could choose any movie to be the first movie that you saw back in a theater over a year? What, what would be the ideal movie? The ideal movie. Because I thought about this. If there's one movie I wanted to see in a theater over after over a year, oh, Cinema Paradiso would be so good. Ooh. That'd be an amazing thematic tie-in to returning. That to would movies. be good. I don't. I don't know. How could I possibly choose Paddington <laughs> Two? Let's. I'll just default <laughs> to Paddington Two. Why not? Do both. Fuck it. Double feature. Start off. Start off nice and wholesome in the theaters. Uh, so yeah, uh, what have I been watching? 
I watched any more Poirot. A lot, lots more Poirot. <laughs> nothing, nothing that I need to necessarily make mention of. Oh, maybe, maybe one. I'll make mention of one. Uh, I watched one of my favorites is the Poirot mystery, Dumb Witness, which maybe one of two I'll recommend you watch first. Mm. I don't know. Uh, again, all these are on YouTube. But it was Dumb Witness was, I think, the very first one I ever watched. And it's one of the it's a longer one. It's 100 minutes long. And it is very clearly something that is is my kind of thing because it has a dog in it. The dog is the dumb witness, like the mystery hinges on the fact that the dog knows who the murderer is and helps solve the case. But it's in like a very subtle, clever way, not like the dog is actually doing things um that'd be stupid but <laughs> but the poirot or analyzes epic. the psychology of the little dog to figure out who the murderer is and <laughs> it's a very charming wholesome episode and it's just kind of it, it, it's very fun and there's also uh for those of you who don't know in my uh uh college capstone film there is very prominently a a seance scene and I've always been been very fascinated with like the occult and like the seance and stuff like that. You know, it's all it's all nonsense, but I'm very fascinated <laughs> with it. And this is perhaps one of like the very first times uh, I ever saw like a seance on screen because there's um, uh, there's like two uh, medium sisters in the film in the in Dumb Witness, and they do a, a seance where they contact the dead woman, and it's uh, it's funny. It's just a charming, very charming episode. Mm. It's pretty light, and I love it. Good, pretty good mystery too. Um, mm. now, what movie could possibly be worse with a dog in it? Come on, the, the dog also very much reminds me of Jack. Oh, uh, the good boy who we've named our production company after, and and a great, great many things. Great inspiration to us all. Yes, yes. To chase the ball of life. Yes, the the plot hinges on a ball that the dog <laughs> likes to drop. Anyway, uh, <laughs> things I've I've been watching. I've been trying to catch up a little bit on the the movies of twenty twenty that I didn't get around to seeing. Uh, so I watched. I mentioned last podcast. I watched Promising Young Woman. I also watched uh, Quo Vadis Adia, which was the. It was nominated for Best International Feature. I don't know what country exactly it was. Um, it is. It's Bosnian. Yes. Interesting. So it's a. It's about the. Um, uh, what is it called? The the conflict when the U, when Yugoslavia broke up. And the Balkans kind of went to shit for a few years and the civil wars in Bosnia and Serbia and all that kind of stuff. Hmm. Um, so it is about a uh, it's a film about war crimes that took place during that time. What fun. Uh, Hot button it, issue. Yeah, it's it's almost almost like a real time film. Like the whole thing takes place over pretty, pretty consecutive consecutively. And it's about kind of like the failure of the United Nations to help people in and us massacre happens and all that kind of stuff it's a very tense film it gets a little repetitive perhaps and could have been a slight shorter but i think it is it's an important film it's a good it is a really good film from 2020 and i recommend it it's on hulu 
it is when I say important film, I mean like I I had no idea. Uh the war crimes of this this scale and uh horrifying nature uh took place mm-hmm. and it is uh enlightening to say the least. And it is also very tastefully done. Like it's not a very violent film at all. It's all it's mostly leading up to stuff and then all the stuff happens kind of off screen and the way that you tastefully do such things. Um, but it's, it's a very, uh, interesting thriller, uh, illuminated some parts of uh, history that I think are important to, uh, to interact with and to know about. And so I recommend it. Quo Vadis Adia. Nowhere near as good as, uh, another round, which clearly deserved to win the Oscar. Uh, it is nonetheless a, one of the better films from 2020. I've seen so many edits of the uh, ending to another round, like people just adding in different songs or whatever. Have you where on yeah. like TikTok or YouTube? No, on Twitter, Twitter, oh. a few on TikTok. But man, that ending is just well, you should you should send me some of these. I haven't seen <laughs> many of those. It is a great movie. I want to watch it again. Do, is it getting a Blu-ray? Does anyone do we know? I, I don't know. It should. It should definitely should definitely should. I, I will get that if it does. I hope it. Uh, fingers crossed. Criterion Collection. Thomas Vinterberg is not in it, and uh, he should be. I think he's no. He, quite uh, isn't the celebration coming soon? Is it? Criterion acquired the rights to it recently. Ah, well then, then he will be. Maybe that's a good time to uh, release another round. Too. Well, yes, Thomas Vinterberg. Yes, definitely deserves to be in the collection. Another round need... of Thomas Vinterberg. In the Criterion Collection, <laughs> but we also need Mads Mikkelsen in the Criterion Collection. That that we do, that we do. You can never go wrong with adding Mads Mikkelsen no. to anything. <laughs> um, Paddington Three with Mads Mikkelsen. He would be. I would like to see a, a villain. He could be a good villain in Paddington. He's he's he plays mostly villains. You know, it would be a great uh, a great villain in a Paddington movie. Someone who mm. is like um violently kind <laughs> like you know how like Pad- paddington shtick is that he's so nice to everyone but have like the reverse side of that who's someone who's so nice and wants to do so much good that it is positively annoying and <laughs> terrible and and gets gets people in trouble <laughs> but yeah, as long anyway. as it doesn't make paddington jealous because paddington cannot be no his character cannot be challenged in that way. Uh, what else? I rewatched Nomadland. I uh, showed my mom that. Oh, yeah. I was I was not intending to rewatch it. I was intending to just press play on Hulu and then walk back here to watch a movie on my own. But I, I stuck around for the full thing. And it is, of course, a pretty good movie. The it's Oscars did not did not necessarily go wrong by choosing it. No, I, I'm 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 content with that pick. Yeah, it is a content pick. Uh, I'd be curious. As with any Oscars, you never really know until like 10 years later as to like how the Oscars will be will be viewed, what the awards, how like, you know, in 10 years, who's going to say, oh, that best picture pick. That's the one that stood the test of time. How could they not pick that? How could they I think not the pick only... Promising Young Woman? That was the real <laughs> masterpiece. We well, I mean, really, it. the only two movies over the last decade that deservedly won their Oscar parasite obviously i don't think anyone's going to be challenging that no. which is especially uh, great when you consider how many movies came out that year and the second one obviously uh shape of water 
I mean, who's going, who's going to challenge that one? Um, not me, at least for the moment. Uh, yeah, probably Parasite and Moonlight are the two that I think were better than everything else. Yeah. Although I flip-flop between whether or not I like Moonlight or La La Land more. But that's not a conversation I like to have in public. <laughs> the... The only other thing I'm going to mention is I watched a movie called The Mole Agent, which is the which is Chile's no, nomination for best documentary feature to the Oscars, 2020 mm-hmm. Oscars. Uh, so it is a Chile film and it is about a, a private investigation firm who hires a old man to infiltrate a uh, nursing home where uh, a daughter of one of the patients at the nursing home believes that her her mother is being uh, abused by the staff and so this old man is supposed to infiltrate and figure out uh, if there's any abuse or neglect going on in the facility Hmm. Uh, i i think i had a a rather clever uh, review dumb but clever review of the film uh, and it was maybe the real elder abuse were the friends we lost along the way Uh, and the whole film is about how like uh, the staff at the the elder care facility they're they're mostly fine and it's just the fact that no one comes to visit the the old folks anymore their family don't pay attention to them and all their friends are dying around them and it's sad being old uh, but it is a charming film the old man main character is a, a charming man there's a great scene where he tries to use a phone and tries to figure out facetime uh, and it you know old people and then they're fun it's charming it's uh <laughs> A little, uh, you know, if the premise sounds interesting, I'd recommend watching it. If not, it's it's nothing particularly special. Uh, alert to our listeners. I was not aware that uh, Memories of Murder was added to Hulu. Oh, yeah. Was it? It, it Yeah, what? it was added to Hulu the same week in the Criterion came out. Pretty cool. Pretty, pretty, pretty cool. neat. Or I mean, you could watch it on Hulu, or you could just get the Criterion. Yeah, no, that that is my suggestion. But I know yeah. some people don't like paying forty dollars for Blu-rays. I don't know why. <laughs> why wouldn't you? I mean, there is a <laughs> there is the Barnes and Noble saying sale coming up. Is it in a little bit? I mean, yeah, May, June, July. So two I had um, I recently traded in a bunch of Blu-rays and DVDs to Z and picked up some stuff and I had to force myself not to get a Criterion because it'll be a little bit cheap. I mean, I'll be using credit, so obviously I won't be paying anything, but just, no. just gotta wait. Not immediately, at least. No, I was I was looking down the barrel of that Secrets and Lies Criterion. I didn't get it. Ooh, cringe. Well. Good things to the come to those who wait. So you'll get it cheaper so told. and you'll True. get it. But it's one of those things where I the the one thing I'm 100 percent getting in the next sale is the Wong Kar Wai box set. And I feel like that's already a bit much and anything more would that be superfluous. But, but they, they have been releasing some good some bangers. They really the have. Months. They really have. You hate yes. to see it. So that. Though that's our check-in. Uh, and now, on to the main event. Who... Do you want to introduce Minari? Yeah, sure. Okay. Uh, Minari is a 2020 film directed by Lee Isaac... Hold on. 
Lee Isaac Chung. For some reason, I always want to say um, the burning guy. Yeah. Lee Chang. Similar name. Yeah. yeah. Um, it is a it's about a family that moves to Arkansas in the 1980s um, and the father is trying to start a farm. And uh, uh, drama ensues. That's really the best way to put it. A little drama ensues. A little drama ensues. Yeah. A wee bit of drama. A tad. A tad bit of uh, drama on the Arkansas <laughs> farm with the South Koreans. For some reason, I thought that they moved to Idaho. I have no idea where I heard of that. Idaho. Um, but when I saw that it was Arkansas, I was like, oh, okay. Because I've been to Arkansas many times. And have I you? Thought, oh, I have, yeah. Why? Family? That's where my grandmother lives. Yep, Arkansas. Ah, in Little Rock, Arkansas. I've, I've been to Arkansas once with our friend Nate. We were driving back. We had picked up Jack, the dog, from Cleveland. And we were driving back and we we're trying to hit as many states as possible. So we we're driving through Louisiana. We said to ourselves, you know what? Let's just boop up, drive through Texarkana, <laughs> and then over to Dallas, into Texas. Texarkana is interesting because that it, the name literally comes from Texas and Arkansas. It's both. It very, it's like it's a little a very, town that's right on the border. It's a very interesting yeah. name. It is. Um, <laughs> the only thing I've done in Texarkana is I had uh, raising canes there. <laughs> Because I guess in Little Rock, that's like the big thing you do is like, let's go drive down to Texarkana. Really? And get raisin yeah. canes? No, no, no. Okay. Just there, I guess. It's more populated than a lot of the places in Arkansas. Interesting. I got, this is, this has nothing to do with Minari. So sorry, but I think it's a fun <laughs> story. I, on that same trip, Nate and I, we actually stopped at Canes in Louisiana, just as like, it's on the side of the road. We'll stop and get some food and then continue on our journey. And I will never hear the end of it from some of my friends here in Tucson who uh, were all big foodies. And they berate me for stopping at a chain of chicken plate of fried chicken places in Louisiana instead of stopping at like an actual local restaurant. And it it's ridiculous. I get more ridicule than I think I deserve for that decision. <laughs> there, I still get it. There are worse like chains you could have gone to. Canes is not bad. No. No. Canes but, is good. If you stopped like an Arby's or something, that would just be stupid. But Canes, you know, well, whatever. Whatever. It's not fine dining, but pretty good. Yeah. So uh, Minari's great. It's, I agree. It's it's just Very great. Solid. It's such a simple film. Like they're really drama does happen, but not a lot of drama. And it's just more about like the little moments along the way that kind of build up to a a moment of catharsis in a way at the end, and then it then it's done. And it's a nice it's, little slice of life. It's a nice little slice of life. It is I don't know what it was. It, what it, all the advertising I saw for this movie gave me like specific ideas of where the movie was going to go. I knew it was a, a Asian family moving into Arkansas to try to start a farm. I, I immediately went like, okay, um, the Southerners are going to be really horrible to them because they're an Asian family in a small Southern town. That is what I'm conditioned to believe about the South, despite the of fact course. that I know for, I know that people aren't all like that. So it's, it's, I had a similar uh, experience watching this that I did the Florida project when I, I initially saw it in the theater 
because the subject matter, you know, it looks heavy. It's about some pretty serious, pretty dark stuff. When I was watching the Florida Project, I just expected the whole times that the kid was going to die somehow. Some tragedy was going to happen to the kid. Well, the film does kind of like set up, at least in Minari. Yeah. Well, yeah, that, I I didn't mean it necessarily in relation to the kids issues. I meant it more so um, with. Uh, there, there's a number of like Southerners in this movie, just people in the town that are trying to help out uh, uh, Jacob. His name is Jacob mm-hmm. as he uh, tries to make the farm. And in my head, I just I saw the bad version of this movie where you had these like uh, uh, horrible Southerners like enacting hate crimes because it's an Asian family. Uh, you had that one guy who's helping Jacob on the farm, who's a Korean War veteran. Mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, God, is this going to be like the Korean War veteran has like PTSD and it attacks Jacob? But no, they don't go down that route. The Southerners are weird, but they're charming. They have little quirks that are very much part of the Arkansas culture, but it's never done in a way that's like punching down at them. And I appreciated that much about it. But it's also yes. it's, it's it's a oh, go ahead. Okay, well, at least on that front, it's a very, I think, I mean, an empathetic film with with regards to its characters, because it is it's telling one a unique story uh, from a perspective of Korean immigrants in Arkansas. Uh, Didn't know there were Korean immigrants in Arkansas, and uh, it was pretty cool to see. But at the same time, it's also telling uh, their interactions with the the Denzians of Arkansas. And, you know, like you said, it's a very it's a fair depiction, I would say, you know, it it, it doesn't. Sorry, mother's making uh, noises out there. Uh, (laughs) But, you know, they they do have their superstitions and there's, you know, obviously religion and people very are very into that. But it it never treats it, never condescends, never looks down upon those people. And it it was refreshing, honestly, like a, a genuine even-handed look at at that kind of life and all that and the thing i I appreciated a lot about the film is that i think there's one line about how reagan is president and that's it like it's it's a period all in the look and you would never like you you couldn't really pin down when exactly it was unless you like paid specific attention to one or two lines in the film and and i like that like it, it, it it feels like it's in the past, but it also kind of feels present and modern in a way that like if it yeah. very heavily emphasized the history of that or when it was taking place in history. Uh, yeah. yeah. Well, I think a huge part of the the 80s setting um, it sort of speaks to just how. How this movie kind of breaks apart this idea of the the American dream the Americanness of this family and the fact that, you know, you have Jacob who is very much um, has that, uh, that sort of American mentality, the, the, you know, I can start a farm. I can thrive on my own business. I can, you know, I can make my own uh, uh, life here. But then you also have his son who, well, J- Jacob has this like American dream mentality, but he's also very much taking his own culture and sort of, blending it he's a farmer but he's farming korean goods he's not necessarily Mm. trying to wash away his history he's sort of bringing his culture with him into this uh uh, new world where his son is sort of like he's very americanized and you can see that a lot with his interactions with the grandmother 
because he has very high expectations of his of what a grandmother should be. And the grandmother uh, has none of them. Yes. And that that's a big point of comedy in the film. Yeah. About how the the conflict between almost expectation and reality. I think that comes up quite a bit. Uh, the audience's expectation of, you know, a Korean family in Arkansas and subverting that expectation. Um, but also the expectation of the little kid and having his grandmother come. And she, I love how she's just playing cards. Like the only thing she knows how to do is like, here, kids, let me, let me teach you how to play cards and how to bet. It's, it's very true. All she does is play cards and watch wrestling. Yeah. And it's, it, it, that's kind of like that specific part of the story of the, the young kid coming to terms with his grandmother. And how she is a grandmother. She's just different. And that kind of is emblematic of the narrative as a whole of like, mm -hmm. they are um, citizens of the United States. They're immigrants, they're small business owners and, you know, coming the audience learning about and, and reforming our expectations around what that can mean and learning about a unique story. Also, I, I like how they're really, I thought Steven Yoon was going to be the main character of this movie. And if there is a main character, because I feel like it's pretty split evenly between all the characters. It's a good ensemble piece. Yeah. But if there is a main character, to me, it feels like the kid. More than yeah. anyone, I feel like this is more framed around his perspective and experience than anyone else. Mm -hmm. And the kid's great. <laughs> yeah. Kid is adorable. One second. What is that kid's name? Because I I saw a very funny interview clip of him. Hold on. What's the kid's name? Is it David? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Um. There's yes. there's a great interview with the kid. Uh, from Minari. Doesn't he dab in one interview I saw? <laughs> the kid's great. like seven years old. Um, so and he's asked, you know, they ask him simple little kid questions and uh, they ask the kid who his favorite actor is. <laughs> the kid says Sonic the Hedgehog. <laughs> That's marvelous. He just saw the new that. Sonic movie. It's great. It's wonderful. Yeah. Well, <laughs> you know, speaking of the kid, I think this is... This film is is firmly within a budding or re-emerging uh, sub-genre of the family genre. Like, I don't know if you've noticed, but as of late, we've had a lot of movies that are like this, that are almost like cultural documents about families focusing on children being Minari. Uh, the farewell shoplifters roma farewell which one is the farewell again uh the with aquafina and she goes to china because her, yes her grandmother yes. Is, is dying yes that's right and and to a to a certain extent like yi yi and these are almost like i want to say they're like they're like family epics where like the film is about a family and the florida project too florida project too and um, they're, they're 
they're always almost like coming of age stories um but they're they're ensemble pieces about the whole family and each character has their own little journey that they go through and we as an audience are they're almost always like teaching the audience or or like sharing a, a aspect of the world or other cultures that we're not necessarily aware of roma is a great example of this of of alfonso oh, yeah. Cuarón very specifically like telling part of his childhood but i mean all of these like the farewell is is definitely a big one based yeah. on real real life minari based sort of on the director's uh family's experiences so it, it, it's an interesting little subgenre that is is kind of emerging of of directors telling personal stories from their own unique uh childhood and sharing different cultural and social uh experiences through usually the eyes of a little kid because obviously little kids are fun and that's uh, it, yeah, it's a good decision if, if they're good actors your kid. yeah your center your film around a kid yeah. makes the audience very engaged from the get-go particularly yeah, this kid's adorable in the film yeah also, not to get too wrapped up in Oscar talk, but the, the grandmother did win an Oscar, which I thought was very well deserved. She did. She's great. But can we talk about how the, the cinematography wasn't even nominated? It's Why? so good. Why? <laughs> Again, I, I mentioned this last episode when we did our quick rundown of the Oscars, but News of the World, how good could the cinematography and News of the World really be in comparison to Minari? Minari. Minari could have won. It was good it enough to, to beat... Uh, mank from a certain point of view well yeah the uh well because the thing is there's not a crazy amount of it's not complicated cinematography no but it captures the landscape so beautifully it's such a beautiful film it's such a tactile film of where like from the get-go it's it's just filled with like real light and trees and nature and just it, it down to earth i feel like is just the kind of modus operandi for the, the cinematography and the sound design of the film and it feels very real and it's it just very natural in terms of everything that's being shot kind of like i also kind of like nomadland very yeah kind of similarly framed films visually i for one cannot wait for the next entry in the Stephen yoon stands in front of a burning agricultural building cinematic universe <laughs> Stephen. <laughs> Can you make a can you make a letterbox list with that exact title? You know how like there's the the great letterbox list of uh uh I forgot what it was, but it has Get Out and Shrek 2 on it, that list. Which one is that? Well, I'll find it, but we can continue. This is uh my favorite list that I've made as of recently. Best picture nominees ranked. <laughs> or should i say manked just <laughs> should you say manked <laughs> the score is also great i think it's very very uh simple it's it's just such a a simply done movie um the only I... real issue i have with the movie oh yeah. what did you oh, find the... well the, the list was films where the main character visits his partner's parents house for the first time only to realize they are racists who have hatched a plan to have a white guy steal their identity i just love how get specific that shrek is and how two. get out and shrek 2 fit together so perfectly in this <laughs> this oddly specific list it's a but great yes, steven yun i would love to see a continuation of his burning agricultural building saga i'm a, i he's a great actor 
Um, yeah. Yeah. Glad he got nominated at the very least yeah. for the Oscar. Yeah. Should have got it for burning, but hey, hey, what are you going to do? What are you gonna do? The, the score is absolutely marvelous. Wonderful. I, I have, I hadn't seen soul yet. So when I made my Oscar predictions, I was like, well, I know soul is probably going to win. I've heard from every source that I, you could possibly hear from. That's the one that was going to win best score. It was like, I hadn't seen it. And I just liked the Minari score so much. Cause it's almost like, it's almost like an orchestral lullaby as a score. Mm-hmm. And it, it starts out like immediately, as soon as the, uh, the opening studio credits are rolling, the music starts rolling and it just kind of, lulls you into this this wonderful sweet sense of security this 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 music and i I just loved it this is also one of the few times it's very difficult to pull off product placement (laughs) i think they did it pretty well in this movie with the mountain dew oh with mountain dew i'm not sure if that was product placement but I it's like, know, the, I it's, it's like the pre the prinkles thing in Ghostbusters 2016. They get they got a freebie because it's it was just there. <laughs> yeah, the uh, that scene with the the tea is disgusting. Kind of funny. The thing of uh, yeah, the, the only issue I have with this movie uh, is the ending, which I like. Uh, the climax. which party end? Like the very end or the climax kind of third act the well there's the emotional climax then the more external one um thematically i really like the external one but i kind of feel like the way that the actual emotional argument ended i don't know if the the actual burning of the of the barn or the crops or whatever it didn't really solve anything it kind of just felt like it left the movie with a lot of unanswered questions. I, hmm, I think I'm going to agree with you, but I, I wouldn't say it left me with unanswered questions. Rather, I think it could have taken its time just a little bit more to explain why the barn burning leads to or, or reconciliation amongst the family and staying there. Um, yeah, because it's one alert. of those things where the, well, yeah. Okay. Spoiler alert. The, the thing, the, the movie ends with Jacob choosing the farm over his family, essentially. The mother wants to leave because the farm is not working out. Um, then the farm does manage to work out. But at that point, he'd already said that, you know, w- you leave or not. I'm staying here with this farm. It's that much is great because I feel mm-hmm. like it sort of it plays into his delusions that it's it's not necessarily about providing. It's more about succeeding. I think that's right. great. And then right after that, the grandmother accidentally burns the barn down, which. As a plot thing, it works thematically. It's it's bordering on contrived because why is she burning it right there in front of the thing? What well, it doesn't really bother me, oh, well. um, but it's the burning of the barn itself that with the shot after it, where they're all laying down on the floor of the, mm-hmm. uh, the trailer, it gives this like this assumption that everything sort of worked itself out it didn't necessarily point to one way or the other it leaned more towards burnt the barn burning solve their problems maybe if it it hinted at it's not fully healed this this wound in the relationship i would be a little more accepting of it but it, it yeah. the way that the film executed it it's made it seem like oh they're starting over again when in reality 
Jacob himself didn't really change. What he said still matters. And what happened was not necessarily reflective of any sort of arc or anything. Right. I, I would agree. It is an abrupt ending. It, it wraps up very quickly. And I think it could have taken just slightly more time. And the barn burning, I, I'm not sure if it's, I don't think it's contrived, but it is perhaps, um, on a, uh, it could have been explained more, but, uh, you know, it is implied that it is a, a moment of, of adversity for the family that brings them to this, this moment of adversity brings them together um, in, in a few different ways. And it, it's pretty ambiguous or at least light on explanation, but I, it, there's enough there for me to accept it as an ending, but not necessarily um, like really kind of feel it as an ending. It doesn't, yeah. like, it all doesn't all come together in a very, nice way and and you know some things do i i think perhaps the the shot of them all sleeping together is perhaps it's not enough but the subsequent scene of uh jacob finally letting the, the, the little stick gadget figure out where the water is that's nice yeah and then like the very final scene of him going to pick the minari also nice but something else needed to to be there yeah. about that that character arc resolution for jacob and his wife but for the little kid the little kid gets his a nice little uh resolution of uh where he runs after the grandmother it's very very subtle and very quiet resolution because like the it's whole film cute. he's he has uh health issues and he's afraid to run afraid to really exert himself and then he has in, in the final scenes he, he's uh he's doing better and he gets and he runs after his grandmother because he finally cares about her and yeah. i think that that, pays that off really yes. nicely. It's one of those things where so much of it pays off so well, but one of the, the biggest conflicts, that being Jacob and his wife, just feels ignored. Um, but what I do really enjoy, especially specifically about the Jacob grandma uh, dynamic, is that I maybe I'm sure you got this as well. The implication that the grandmother kind of like sacrificed her own health for Jacob's. Oh, not necessarily kid? outright yeah because it's one of those things where is jacob oh the grandmother the grandmother then, sacrificed her health for the Dave. david's david yeah david yes yes which i thought yes. was neat yeah. yeah 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 it's it's that it's it's that nice it it really rides that line really well of being really obvious, but you still got to think a little bit to come to that conclusion. It's great. It's confident filmmaking. It, it it's very competent. It's a great down to earth movie. I I absolutely adore movies that just take their quiet time. They show us nature and being a part of nature and working with the earth. And there's just something so wholesome about that in and of itself as as a concept. And the music and everything else. It's it's a great experience. It is a nice, quiet film. It's not, not trying to do much, but what it does, it does does pretty well. A little, yeah. little hiccup at the end, but you know, I, I recommend it. It's it's one of the better films of twenty twenty. I agree. It's good. Yeah. Is it? Shall we? Where does it rank? What? Like what? What is your favorite film of twenty twenty that you've seen so far? It's pr still. It's probably another round still. 
Um, b- the big three for me, and I don't know. I think another round is at the top currently, and the other two are uh, Sound of Metal and Mank, which mm. I don't know where they are exactly. Um, this is probably a little bit, but it's de- it's between like either Sound of Metal and Mank, or Mank is right above it, and then below it's Nomadland. Just right around there. It's a pretty decent year. Like there's there's I think there's a solid like five films that are really really good. I still really want to see Judas and the Black Messiah. Yes, still need to see that. And Tenet is now on HBO Max, so I kind of want to see that too. I'm putting it on my list. I might watch that tonight. I might watch that tonight too. Because I was very anti-Tenet when it was coming to theaters, but now I'm kind of like, all right. <laughs> I'm, I'm more appreciative of action. I really like John David Washington. Let's do it. Yeah. Maybe. maybe oh, if, actually. Yeah. Another round. And I'm going to say above Mank and Sound of Metal is uh, I'm thinking of ending things, which is the movie I always forget exists. <laughs> I keep for yeah, I keep forgetting about that too. It's it's a good movie. It's good. Speaking of good movies, uh, BFI. Let me let me pull up the poll real quick so we can we can tell. I'm um, yeah, I'm curious to hear who voted for this one. Okay, or, so it's not uh, on critics the directors. directors list. Let's go to the what. Critics. Oh, ridiculous. Maybe it's not on either list. I just made it up. <laughs> no, it's on the director's list. No, it is on okay. the director's list. I oh, just, God, okay. I uh, maybe I spelled it wrong. No, okay. Fine, BFI, don't, don't work with me. For some reason, up until this weekend, I thought it was The Illusionist. There it is. No, I, I know, because we, we had been talking about The Illusionist. Yeah. And then the conformist, and it's which is uh, the illusionist is the animated movie. Yeah. Yes. Yes. That is because it all. There's also the Edward Norton, the illusionist, written sort of. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, okay. So this week's film on the BFI list is the conformist. The conformist is a 1970 film from the Italian director Bernardo Bertolucci. It is, uh, it is about an uh, Italian man who is, is sort of kind of working with the fascist secret police and is, uh, has a mission to track down uh, an old professor who is a dissident and anti-fascist in Paris. And uh, there's there's a lot lot more going on under the surface. That's a very a surface lot. level explanation of what what is going on in the conformist. It is, uh, of course, on the BFI Sight and Sound poll. It is number one hundred and two on the critics poll, so just barely missed out on that one. Interesting. Um, but it is number fifty nine on the director's list, probably tied with some stuff. Um, Let's see if any any recognizable Paul Schrader, Paul Schrader voted for The Conformist. Oh, my God. It's crazy because the whole time I was thinking this reminds me so much of Mishima. Yeah, yeah. a lot of Mishima in this movie. So that does not surprise me. The I don't recognize anyone else except for one of the critics, uh, David Thompson, who is oh. a fairly famous critic. I think I've heard that name before. Yeah, yeah, I have. I think I have some books about film history and stuff from David Thompson. There's there's a David Thompson and a David Thompson. 
kind of confusing. I, I do not know the difference between Thompson okay. and Thompson. <laughs> yeah, but who knows? So I have seen, as with a great many films on the VFI list, I have seen The Conformist before. I think I've seen it th- three or four times with this most recent viewing. Um, and it is the, the previous time I, I saw The Conformist was a very interesting time because I watched it at uh, back at ASU and the cinematographer Lawrence Scher, uh Larry as we like to call him great guy who he, uh, he shot Joker uh, Godzilla King of Monsters working uh, working Hollywood DP regardless of what you think of those films he's he is a successful man well he's I a- just didn't know that King of Monsters had a DP but Joker is yeah, a well that movie wow <laughs> I will refrain from saying anything because I, I like Larry. Larry was very kind enough to uh, he uh, was a part of my my honors thesis committee. And that was, oh, that was nice. very nice of him. Where I I talk about Paddington too. So Wonderful. I've I've made a ho- working Hollywood DP listen to me rave about Paddington too. It's just me. <laughs> um, anyway, so he was at ASU for a variety of things, and he. Uh, there was an event and it was like choose one of your favorite uh, examples of cinematography and it was like The Conformist so there was a screening of The Conformist we watched it with uh, Lawrence Scher and afterwards he he gave a talk I think with another professor at at ASU and uh, talked about how how great the cinematography is how how good this film looks and it most certainly does look good it is a it's a great film. Very curious to hear what Chandler thinks of it because he's never seen it before. So Chandler, did you not see my letterbox review? I did, yes. But I, I, I want to have some suspense for the yes. audience more so. Uh, yes, I apologize. Well, yeah, uh, this is amazing. This is an amazing fucking movie. I will say outright that it is one of the greatest looking movies I've ever seen. And even if the story was complete ass. I would have revisited this just to look at it. Mm-hmm. It was it was such a beautiful movie that there were times where I lost the plot because I wasn't paying attention to what they were saying. I was just looking at everything around them. But I do think the story is equally as good with one minor major minor don't know hiccup in it. Mm-hmm. Um, but this reminded me a lot of Mishima. It also reminded me a lot of Army of Shadows. I don't know if you've, you you thought of it. Y- yes, but, but it also kind of reminds similar me of vibe. Le Samurai, because the main guy is also often portrayed in a trench coat and a hat. And yes, a similar yes. kind of dead look behind their eyes. I thought it was uh, it was it was incredible. I gave it the five stars on Letterboxd because I, I legitimately think it's that good. It is. It is a fantastically nuanced critique of fascism, and it's difficult to do that. Without it sounding preachy. And there is, we can discuss this later, there is things I still wrestle with on how they portray a lot of the fascist stuff. But I just thought it was it was incredibly well done. On many different levels. It, I don't know, it's one of those films where I'm surprised it exists as a movie. Like it, how nuanced it ta- its take about fascism really is, because it really, 
it's so heavily about fascism and yet not at all. Like it doesn't deal with really big fascist things you, you think about. Like it's not really dealing with any of the government or the politics of, of Italy or anything like that. It's all all about the internal conflict of the people who operate under a fascist regime and, and why they would do so. And the the conforming attitude, the, the conservative conforming attitude of that and the the kind of um, the roles that people play um, that, you know, in, in a fascist society, it is kind of looking to a, a venerated past of like, okay, we were great once and now we need to reinstill these ideals and be, um, these are the things that will make our society great again. These things are usually repressive and, and violent and things like that. Um, but these, these things make people act in ways that they, they might not be themselves. They are forced to conform and to play roles, the roles of the husband, the man, the woman, the monogamous relationship, marriage. A lot of the film is about how uh, our main character is kind of not not per se forced into marriage, but it is very much driven by this desire to fit in with society and kind mm-hmm. of bend wherever society is going. And I think that's the the real power of what it's saying because it's not necessarily condemning or showing him doing anything wrong per se, as you might see no. in another film yeah. about fascism. It's more about how he's just deathly afraid of being different and the, the yeah. lengths that I think a lot of people go to, to, to fit in and to play the roles that society has assigned to them. Yeah. Another movie that it reminded me a lot, not necessarily stylistically. Uh, I also got a lot of sallow vibes from this. Yeah. Of course. Sallow as well is not necessarily about, it's about fascists, not fascism. Hmm. It's about how the people operate and how, um, well, the Mishima connection also comes from the fact that the structure of this movie is very interesting. Where like the first entire act of this movie is just about let seeing how he uh, how he operates, how he lives in this fascist world, intercutting with like flashbacks of, um, uh, just the sort of stuff about himself that he's repressed in the name of fascism. Mainly his sexuality. It's not necessarily outright stated that he's gay. But there's a lot of implications that he is. Um, I thought his blind friend was also very interesting because I thought that mm-hmm. was a very solid metaphor. <laughs> a blind friend who is the voice of fascism. Yes, very... because he's blind and he reads from this book. So you can say that he can't see, but so he's just regurgitating the words given to him, sort of uh, mirroring how a lot of these people exist in this fascist state. And then at the end of the movie, the blind person just gets swept up in this crowd. He he can't see, but he's being led by the people around him, just like a lot of the people uh, in fascist regimes. But it's basically the first act of this movie is just explaining who he is, what he's repressed and what where he lives. And then it takes you to Paris, where everything that was repressed about him is sort of out in the open and celebrated in Paris. So I thought that was a nice little um, uh, a nuanced way to, to explore how fascism operates on people um but yeah the pair stuff in in general i thought was really great it's it's hard to put a lot of this into words because it's so it's so visual 
Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Another big one that I thought of uh, was it reminded me a lot of Terry Gilliam, specifically mm-hmm. Brazil. Just the it, it borders on zany this world. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very like I don't even know where the fuck they found these locations. So much of this stuff. I'm like, does it exist? Is it real? Did they make it? Like the insane asylum that his dad's in. That looks straight out of Brazil. It's like this giant marble bathhouse where crazy people are just walking around spouting philosophy. Well, like a lot of it's it's great because <laughs> a lot of these places are I they're real. These are these are yeah. I would not be surprised. I haven't done my research, and I wish I had to say like maybe some of the the places that they do visit in the first really the first third of that film when they're in Italy are like actual pieces of fascist architecture that are they're still around I, I would not be surprised you know if if some of these places are like particularly they at one point there's a very quick scene sort of where he goes to the the administration building some kind of administration building yeah. and there are shots of like it's just it's black and white the architecture and it's very um barren and oppressive almost how big it is and it it's it uses I think for the most part, like a lot of the the Italy stuff is shot in a location, actually. Um, some of the Paris stuff, that's more like in interior rooms and hotel rooms and yeah. kind of you can see how it's more constructed. But but Italy most certainly feels like a place that is like they filmed in, in, in the places that the, this history kind of took place in. And a lot of the, I noticed a lot of uses of the color blue as well. Mm-hmm. It's interesting because a lot of the I feel like every scene in Paris, if you look out the window, it's just the world around them is blue. And then when you go to Italy, a lot of that blueness is inside the actual buildings, which I thought was interesting. Like his apartment, he has this weird blue light. <laughs> it's a, it's a lot of stuff that is inorganic, but just with how expressive this movie is, it doesn't bother me. Yeah. It's that, you know, it's, it's a lot of visual metaphors. It. The, the light, like what makes this film so visually interesting is definitely the lighting. Like this, it is um, expressionistic lighting. It's not necessarily like real, as you're saying, um, 100% of the time. There are some shots where you're like, okay, well, that light isn't necessarily a realistic light to be there. Um, there's one shot in particular. I'm not going to go about explaining it, but you cut to the wide shot and the lighting is different. but it, it it works right? because the the lighting in particular is there for um, not just stylistic effect, but also kind of a, a, to bring life to the sets in a way that gives them character and bring life to the characters and light them in interesting ways that informs the, the narrative itself. And I think, the, of course, the other part is uh, the way the camera moves in this film is very unique. Um, yeah. The editing too, uh, it's very odd, especially especially in the beginning. Well, so the I wasn't beginning sure what was like happening. A kaleidoscope of yeah, it, it flashbacks and not flashbacks and memories and and then it it slowly kind of goes into a more linear narrative when they get to Paris. Yeah. But the first forty five minutes is all over the place. Well, it's one of those things. Uh, I, I literally had to pause it fifteen minutes into the movie because I'm like, what the fuck is happening? And I don't know if that's necessarily on me or the movie. I'm still determining that. Uh, but the ending too, like the, the big climax of this movie, spoiler alert, 
is that the, the Italian guy manages to kill his professor and his professor's girlfriend. It's that great scene out in the forest mm-hmm. where they're both shot and stabbed, mainly. Uh, and they cut immediately from that, go straight, like, almost ten years later, the implication would be. Because it cuts from there to an older version of this couple um, listening to Mussolini transfer his power. Mm-hmm. So you go, because I didn't, I wasn't necessarily sure when this movie took place. I think it was like 30. It's somewhere in the 30s. I don't know. Well, it's definitely when the, the Italian fascist government is still finding its feet, but is in power. Yeah. And it's not quite close. Like World War II has clearly not started yet. Yeah. So then it cuts all the way to the end when Mussolini's reign of terror has ended. And then you can see a lot of that stuff that was shown in the beginning. It looks apocalyptic now, especially mm-hmm. in the end when you talk about the guy who's uh, <laughs> eating mice and cats. <laughs> and to, that, too, because you had that scene because there's a flashback where um, the young I don't even know his name. I'm, I'm horrible at the Italian names. But the main character has this sexual encounter with a chauffeur when he's like 13, Lino, I think. Yeah. Uh, and he meets that chauffeur. He thinks that he killed the chauffeur. It wasn't he wasn't it was ambiguous about that. Then he meets the chauffeur again. And when he sees the chauffeur, he immediately like. Proclaims to everybody that this man was the guy who did all the stuff that he did. That's what he was saying, right? He was saying that this is the man who shot and killed the professor in 1938. Y- yes. Yes. He's putting the blame on. Yeah, this person, which is interesting because it it almost feels like the experience with the chauffeur. He repressed that so hard that it sort of spawned this insecurity about himself that led him towards the more traditional uh, fascist um, ideology. It's almost like that moment was the Kickstarter that led him all the way down to where he is now. And instead of like taking responsibility for it, he puts all of his atrocities and just throws them at him because he's blaming him in a sense that he doesn't want to, you know, he, he wants to uh, cleanse himself of his crimes. But also he genuinely, I think, believes that that altercation with the chauffeur is sort of the cause for all the shit he did as a fascist. It's interesting. It's so much of this stuff works on multiple levels that, that he's placing the blame elsewhere for yeah. his actions. It's placing the blame um, not only of his direct actions, but the actions that inspired those actions, I guess. Right. And this desire, you know, this continuous desire to fit in with society. And, you know, he has he's carrying this this baggage around of being a collaborator with the fascists. And obviously this is no good. It's no good anymore. So you have to get rid of that. And, you know, if someone has to be responsible for all those things. And so why not? place that blame on the person you you believe or you blame you know he blames the guy lino the chauffeur for his repression and all that kind of stuff and so he puts his actions fully on him in a public way as like cleansing himself so that he can um kind of be a part of this new society but as with a lot of shots in the film um the film has a lot of crowd scenes and a lot of scenes of him alone and the at the very end like the crowd continues on he's left alone and so like the clear visual metaphor is of course that like 
you know, he can change all he wants, but he's still ultimately alone. And that yeah. this, this driving desire to conform to wherever the wind of society blows is ultimately, yeah, you know, it gets him nowhere. I think the only scene in the movie I just thought was weird was uh, the scene where the main guy's wife is detailing how she was sexually assaulted by her uncle. Yeah, it's odd. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how it fits in with the rest of the narrative because it's it's weird because he like sort of fantasizes about it. It's it's a sensual moment, which is really the, fucked up. But I'm not entirely sure the intent. Yeah. I, I think it works. I'm not sure what the intent is as well, but I think it works along with the themes of it. This is a very um, this is a film very subtly about sex, all of it, all the way through. Yeah. Um, and repression of such things. And that I think perhaps goes along with that. And like the, the, you know, crimes of rape and stuff like that. And, and how society um, dismisses those things and how this, this is just kind of a story she's telling years later. Yeah. Um, you could even say that the fact that the guy is fantasizing sort of about it, he's treating it very sensually. It sort of speaks to, what turns a fascist on <laughs> yeah i think there's multiple ways you could you could yeah. approach that i mean it, it's, it's odd obviously but it's, it's odd, odd but I, I think it works still odd but it <laughs> it's not like the uh it's not like the the strange sexual moment in ghostbusters no <laughs> i was thinking of that when i was watching it but yeah it's uh it's a lot to unpack yeah a lot of great stuff with, of course, it's Italy, so there's a lot of great stuff with the church. Um, hmm. And I think that goes along with, like, everyone is is playing a role and of... Um, Even the church guy, and then the confessional, he's not necessarily speaking in terms of, of, of his religion. Like, he's not guiding the conversation in terms of, like, the teachings of the religion. He's basically boiling it down to you're the confessor. I'm the priest. You listen to me. It's a power. And that's dynamic. sort of. Yeah. And, and emphasizing that. And, uh, you know, the conversation is further emphasizing the fact that it's, it's just about power and authority. When he mentions that he's working with the, the fascist secret police, the priest was like, OK, <laughs> I absolve you. Yeah, I forgive you. Now, there is the conversation to be had um, about. Do you think that I don't I don't necessarily lean one way or the other in regards to this issue, but do you think that there is a, a moral responsibility to the filmmaker to uh, portray these horrible people, these fascist people? Do you think portraying them so stylishly? Is a bad thing? No. Because it's one of those things that reminds me a lot of uh, Fight Club is a good example where Tyler Durden and that whole movement is clearly like supposed to be bad, but it's so well stylized that people can't help themselves, but attach themselves to it. And it was, this is what I was thinking in the beginning of the movie, when you're seeing a lot of fascist Italy and I'm like, Oh damn, it's sleek. These people that got great outfits. It's a great look to it. Um, I could see people who are already sort of leaning towards a, uh, uh, the fascist ideology seeing this as a sort of like visual inspiration to them, I guess it, it sort of inspires 
I don't know. It's interesting. I don't I don't have an answer to this myself. It's just something I was thinking about watching it. Right. I I think when it comes to to fascists watching the conformists, you know, modern day fascists, <laughs> they turn on the conformists. I think that if they were to watch it in a very superficial manner perhaps, but if anyone who actually watches the conformist, I think you're you're left at the end like you finish the film and and you have actually engaged with it you're you're left with the feeling that this is not a good lifestyle that it, it it's all for show yeah and that's but it's like, also that's one of those things the where and like that, there's you know people are going to latch on to the iconography regardless of if yeah you know yeah. the conformist is showing it or not and perhaps it is more so about showing the the power that such iconography can have and the power yeah. of the authoritative architecture and of of being a part of society looking cool and all that kind of stuff um that's a part of what it's trying to say and i, I don't think anyone's going to be turned into fashion turned on to fascism yeah. because of how cool it looks or not because quite frankly the paris stuff looks just as cool and that's very much about not being fascist yeah. and, and the, the freedom well, that that offers it's one of those things where it, it I'm, I'm trying to picture the other way this could have been displayed where the fascists are noticeably uglier and it just if you know if you it's like <laughs> it's like you have the portraying in a way where it's like soy boy fascists and chad parisians <laughs> I, I I I look at it in that way, and I'm like, okay, that's a lot more manipulative. I can yes, understand and, you know, how that to be clear work. Fascism is attractive. Like we have to deal with the fact that you know yeah. people did did fat did a fascism. They keep doing <laughs> a fascism. People, some people do, and it, it's yeah. not. There's no. There is a reason for it, and I think portraying that reason has. A purpose, at least in understanding of in a wider context for yeah. for people who are are not necessarily drawn to that, but could be suckered in, um, and where just a mere exploration of such a thing is a good uh, illumination and and yeah, in, in that sense, like you know, it's not going to stop any fascists from becoming fascists, obviously, but it might, yeah, you know, someone watches it and and they can see the understanding i think and empathy and and realization and thinking about this kind of stuff is important to preventing it in an honest mm -hmm. manner i think that's what the film does i agree so i, I think in that sense uh, that the iconography and making fascism look cool is okay yeah the one scene that um i don't know it, one scene that i i, I saw the, the scene where in the beginning with the blind guy and then the radio station listening to those people play song on the radio right before he goes mm -hmm. and read him. I don't know what it was about that scene, but it reminded me a lot of the uh, this is the girl scene from Mulholland Drive. Just the oh, way it looks. Well, because it's not one of those things where I can picture David Lynch necessarily being a big fan of this movie, but it's fun watching these movies. This is scene. this is a fairly influential film, I guess. Yeah, I, I think at the very least, uh, Bernardo Bertolucci is he's not really a mainstream uh, yeah, I looked at his other director. movies. He fucking did The Last Emperor. <laughs> and Which I'm like, why this one? Yeah. What is his other ones? 
Yeah, like Bernardo Bertolucci is is definitely one of like the great Italian directors, but he's not really talked about all that much today. And I definitely though like people know of people in filmmaking know of The Conformist and they know most definitely of The The Last Emperor, which is Last Tango Pairs. Beautiful film. Equally beautiful film. Um but I do I think The Conformist thought... is probably his best work at least of what I've seen. I always thought that Martin Scorsese did The Last Emperor. What am I thinking of? I think he might have produced it. He did something similar. To the Last, Last Emperor, Emperor is an interesting film. It is a American-produced project in English, in China, directed by an Italian. <laughs> oh, he did Kundun. Kundun, yes. yes. That's what I thought. Okay similar yeah but yes great movie i really really like this movie i i'm sad to learn that there wasn't a criterion of this movie it is a great movie it is if you like the aesthetic of film and and the visual language of film i cannot recommend this film enough it is probably one of the most visually appealing films we're going to talk about on on the list and i think it never stops too no it doesn't it's it's consistent all the way through like you think i think a lot of the really powerful visuals are kind of front loaded in the beginning because those yeah. are obviously with fascism and there's these really intense locations um but it it kind of the locations and the intensity of those quiets down it towards the the middle and the end and then it's more focused on the lighting um there's one shot in particular that i love that is really emblematic of how uniquely the camera is moving in this film because it's all over the place. Like there's a lot of jib crane shots in the movie. Um, but there's one great one in the near the beginning when uh, our, the main character, Marcello, is being followed by the fascist agent, the actual secret police agent. Mm-hmm. And he's walking to his house and he thinks he's being followed. And he the whole scene is filmed in Dutch angles. Um, and he goes he's at his house he goes to the gate and shuts the gate and he's like who are you why are you following me and and he realizes that you know they're working together they're he's a secret police agent and the camera goes from a uh, dutch angle and it tilts itself back up when the world is is right and he, he has a footing on where he is and then of course it from there it dollies back up and, and looks at the house as they enter that uh, location great shot but the camera is yeah. moving a lot yeah the That's whole time, of- beginning to end, like every other scene, I just had to be like, "This is fucking beautiful." Like that scene in Paris where they're all dancing. I was, I was just about to say, I think the scene in the film that always sticks out to me the most is the Paris dancing scene, and there's just one. It emphasizes how like lonely he is, despite being in a crowd. Like there's a great visual of him. He's in the center of this just spiraling circle of people, and he and he feels awkward in that position and yet that's where he wants to be like he wants to be in the in crowd yeah it's such an interesting visual and just the whole thing like the whole scene is they're in this warmly lit dance hall and blue as blue can be twilight paris is outside yeah so i just i want to know how they shot that because for some scenes i'm like did they put gels on the windows to make it look blue out there maybe i i don't know I just find that scene funny because <laughs> the, the the narrative way that he gets 
to talk to the other fascist agent is that the this giant like conga line circles the building. It's just fun. <laughs> <laughs> it's fun. I, I wish more more movies need to have like dancing scenes that I agree. are like uh, another round. There's another round has a fantastic dancing. Scene. Dancing is a great, great way of visually expressing ideas with movement and people. And I think this is a great dancing scene because it does. It's very the way they dance. It's very um, emblematic and symbolic, as with a it's, lot it's of the visuals that, in the film. Yeah, it's 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 that that utopian image of us all holding hands together, creating a bond between humans. But literally, it's literally and then it goes just surrounding the fascist yep <laughs> it's, it's yeah so much of this movie is so metaphorical in its imagery it's just it's fascinating it's great very good movie i i'll just say that i definitely think it deserves to be on the list it, it definitely does i don't i don't think about the conformist all that much like it's not one of like the great films that kind of pops in my head all that much but every time i watch it it's just it is so good but definitely, can, definitely one of the best ones ever made. I think it is. And more than anything, it deserves to be on here just because of how purely visual it is. It's so well constructed with the, the tools of cinema in mind that you can't not put it on here. I don't know how far it would be on here. I just got to get you know, give it some more time. I just watched it yesterday. But oh, yeah, it's definitely definitely deserves it. I don't think it's like a, a top one-third film yeah but it's solidly in the in the middle of the pack i think pretty good put right next to army of shadows very much recommended it is on youtube for free it's on the criterion channel is it yeah i just watched yesterday on it oh i did not know this Uh, it's also on (laughs) uh, add-ons to amazon prime have it that i i happen to have weird um so it's a few different places that you could you could search it out. Nice. Recommend it. Yeah. Very good. Next week we do not have a BFI movie. No, next week Changing we are, it up. We are watching one movie which you can find on the Criterion channel and that is Dragon Inn, the classic wuxia film from Taiwan. Um and then we are watching Goodbye Dragon Inn, which you will most certainly not be able to find anywhere because we couldn't <laughs> and we had to buy the freaking Blu-rays. So um, we'll very we'll be very curious to watch that. It is uh, very obscure. So it's obscure. And I don't know what it is because this is it. this is this is atypical for us. Yeah. Devoting an entire episode to a movie we don't haven't seen because I don't know what it is. Maybe we feel the same way, but there's something alluring about Goodbye Dragon Inn from the yeah. premise. I'm the very premises, excited to watch. Yes. Yes. Yeah. It is a, a another movie about movies. Yeah. Uh, you know, we like movies, so that's uh, I am alluring in and of itself. I've seen yeah. a few. So that's what we're doing next week. I don't know. After that, I don't know. We'll see. We shall see. <laughs>